Hey everyone, this is Denise. I wanted to let you know that we have a Patreon account and we've mentioned it before in the show and you're probably like, what the heck is that? Patreon is a website that gives you some rewards and perks while helping support your favorite podcast. Um, that would be us, Murderous Roots, don't forget. And you can do this for as little as $3. You'll have access to bonus episodes when we release them, as well as a thank you note and Murderous Roots sticker. We hope you check it out at patreon.com slash Murderous Roots. Thanks, guys. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Hey everyone, this is Denise and welcome. On this week's episode, Zelda and I continue our conversation on Diane Fossey and her family tree. At the end of last week's episode, we had just discussed the murder of a family member. This week, we're going to finish up on her mother's side of the family, the kid family, and continue on to the Fossey side, her father's side. You can expect some more murder and a history of death by train in this episode, as well as a historical event that still lives in people's memories. You should be aware that there is a very detailed description of a murder on one in one instance from the newspaper account, and there is some discussion of suicide. We will be back again in two weeks with our next episode covering Marsha P. Johnson. We hope you enjoy. So there were a number of violent deaths in her family. Yeah. Wow. Oh, and we're not done. Wow. So, as I mentioned a bit earlier, that Diane's great-grandfather, Joshua Kidd, was from Alabama originally. His family was as Southern as you can get from what I was able to find. His grandparents, so Diane's third great, were John and Elizabeth Kidd. They lived in South Carolina, raising at least eight children, one of which was Andrew, Diane's second great-grandfather. Andrew was born in 1790 in South Carolina, as was his wife, Elsie Jane Barton. In 1814, Andrew served in the War of 1812 in Captain John Beatty's 1st South Carolina Militia. He was discharged five months later for his service. And this is pretty common, um, especially Revolutionary War and War of 1812. He was given bounty land as payment, two warrants for 80 acres each. Now, what was interesting about the land he was given is it only could be used in Missouri, Illinois, or Arkansas. Hmm. So they were trying to use the land as a way to get people to go westward. Mm -hmm. And this was land that was able to be passed down through inheritance, but it was also not allowed to be sold until after 1852. And given that they lived in Alabama and never lived in Arkansas, I do wonder if Joshua inherited the bounty land from his father, Andrew. And that's what drew him to Arkansas in the first place. So from the widow's application for pension, I learned that they got married in December 1814 in Jasper, Alabama. And this tells me that soon after he was discharged from the militia, he Uh left South Carolina and headed to Alabama. Okay. I do know that Andrew was 24 when he married. However, I'm not certain about Elsie. See, her age kept changing from census to census. 
But my best guess based on several different census records and a death record is that she was either 14 or 15. Oh my gosh. Yeah. In the 1830 census, I found the couple living in Monroe County, Alabama, but they would return to Jasper where they would spend the rest of their lives. Andrew and Elsie had at least 12 children with the oldest son being Joshua, as far as I could tell. Andrew died in March 1859 of dropsy. ALC never remarried. She applied for the widow's pension in 1874. So this is like 15 years after he's died. She's applied for this pension. And I believe it was finally approved four years later in 1878. And I'm not sure when she died, but I believe it was right after 1880 would be my guess. Now, I can't forget about the Hooten family. Remember Molly Hooten from Indiana? Uh-huh. So she was the wife of Robert and grandmother of Diane. When she and Robert married, she was a 16-year-old girl from Indiana in the middle of Arkansas for no apparent reason. <laughs> and, and I mean that because I can't find her in the 1880 census. <laughs> so let me explain why this is significant. So Molly's father was a mysterious man named William Thomas Hooten. And by mysterious, I mean hard to track. According to census records, he was likely born in 1841. I was unable to find him with any certainty in 1850. I believe I found him in 1860, but I'm not confident enough to share it as a fact here. My theory, though, is that his parents died when he was a teenager and he and his siblings were scattered. Hence why it's hard to find him. In May 1864, he married Minerva Sublet the daughter of Kentucky natives, David Sublet and Mary Marshall. Unlike William, Minerva was much easier to track. Her father, David, wed Mary in in October 1831 in Kentucky. Then sometime after the birth of their fifth child, a daughter named Martha, in 1840, they traveled over 200 miles out of Kentucky to make a new home in Putnam County, Indiana. Wow. Why? I have no idea. But once they got there, they had four more kids. Minerva was number seven out of the nine. Wow. So Minerva and William started out their married life in the midst of the Civil War. Not long before their first anniversary, when Minerva was three months pregnant with their first child, William enlisted in Company A of the 43rd Indiana Infantry Regiment on February 13, 1865. Luckily for William... Not only would he survive, because it was towards the end of the war, but he was discharged exactly four months after his enlistment. William and Minerva would have only three children. Their youngest, Molly, Diane's grandmother, was born in 1870 and never knew her father, as he Mm -hmm. died prior to 1872. Mm. And before I tell you more, because this is where it starts to get really good, I want to share a story about an event that happened with one of Minerva's sisters in 1857. But before I do that, I have to tell you how I found out about the story. Okay. So I'm looking for newspaper articles on the Sublet family. This is why I typically do, once I establish who they are, I'll go and I'll look for newspaper articles on the siblings and just see if there's anything interesting I can come up with. So I started with the oldest sibling, Elisha. Elisha was 12 years older than Minerva, and I found an article about his death in the Indianapolis News on January 19, 1882, 
which said the following. On Sunday night last, Elisha Sublet was run over and killed by a freight train. Mm-hmm. Then after describing where Elisha unfortunately met his demise, it had the following. Mrs. Mullinex, a daughter of Sublet, was killed by her husband in 1856, and he was hanged for it. George Sublet, a brother, William Sublet, a son, and Hooten, a son-in-law, had been killed by the railroad cars. Wesley Watson, another son-in-law, was shot dead in a quarrel over his wife's infidelity. Whiskey was at the bottom of it all. Oh my gosh. Wow. So alcoholism was a thing. Mm, Perhaps, but that's a lot to unpack right there. Yeah. So now I had to sort through and find each piece and figure it out. One of the first things, though, I established was that whoever wrote the paper got a lot of shit wrong. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) So as Elisha was 50 at the time of his death, born around 1832, there is no way he had a daughter murdered by a husband in 1856. 26 years earlier, he was only 24. (laughs) He wouldn't have had a daughter who was old enough to marry unless he had his firstborn at the age of two. What did they get one of the older relatives mixed up with him or something? Uh, or? I figured it all out. Okay, I'm coming. So heck, Elisha didn't even mar- get married though until 1874, which means he had no son-in-law either. So Hooten, that was referred to, was Minerva's husband, William Hooten, Molly's father. So that was Elisha's brother-in-law, not son-in-law. And so now we know how he died. And what happened to him? Railroad car. And according to the article, whiskey was at the bottom of it. But we'll find out. And by the way, this family has issues with trains. We'll continue, though. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. So as I sorted through all the pieces, I naturally zeroed in on Martha at first, who was not his daughter, but his sister. So they basically, they attributed... They got almost everything wrong by saying he was the father of these people when he was the brother. Okay. So Martha was Minerva's older sister by four years. Martha Ann Sublet married Greenbury O. Mullinix on March 12th, 1857. So again, this is another thing that got wrong. It didn't happen in 1856. It was 1857. Ah. Martha was either 16 or 17 and Greenbury was 24. And this marriage would end less than a month later, April 10th, 1857, when Greenbury killed Martha with an axe. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, From the Bedford Independent on December 30th, 1857, less than two weeks after Greenbury was executed for Martha's death. Wow. I have the following story, and it's it's really long, but I'm not sharing the whole thing, I promise. Um, But I might post the whole thing on the website. In a relig- and, and it starts talking about Greenbury's background and talking about his father. So this is what we're at. In religion, his father is what is called a hard shell Baptist. In politics, he is a Democrat, or to be better understood, he voted for Pierce, Buchanan, and Willard. He has been addicted to intemperance for a number of years, perhaps ever since he has been a man. He is a person without education opposed to free schools and destitute of any liberal 
ideas concerning society, religion, or government. (laughs) 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 Uh, um, I just love reading the old stories sometimes. They're so great. He has given his children but little education, and the associations they have had are not as such would be calculated to elevate them socially or morally. His son Greenbury was naturally shrewd and cunning, and his history has been such as would lead anyone to expect that he would arrive at the tragical end which the law prescribed for him. He was vicious, revengeful, and stubborn, would sometimes drive his father's family from their home with an axe or other dangerous weapon, and held them in constant awe of him. And not awe in a good way, it sounds like. Wow. Since his arrest for the murder of his wife, he has endeavored occasionally to produce the impression that he was partially insane, asserting his innocence and declaring his entire ignorance of everything connected with his wife's murder. On the 10th of April, in the morning, about the hour of breakfast, and while his wife was engaged in preparing the meal, he took her life with an axe cleaving her skull to the brain. Oh, my God. They did not hold back in the papers back in the day, did they? No. Miss Sublette was an uneducated girl and of a family whose associations were not of the best character. She is said to have been of good disposition and on a comparison with her husband, Bastley, his superior. Oh, and her family is also generally considered to be better people than the Mullinex family. Mm. Mullinex is said to have married Miss Sublette in order to let some persons with whom he was on bad terms, quote unquote, see that he could do so. Mm. His marriage, it appears, was an act of ill feeling on his part toward others. He was heard to say after his marriage that he had no horse and damned if he was going to pack wood to keep the fire going in the house. He declared his intention of going west and leaving his wife behind him. He expressed his great dislike of housekeeping. So he was not a good guy. He sounds positively gross and nasty. Yeah. And I mean, I feel, oh, poor Martha Ann just was probably so hopeful and then Mm -hmm. ended up with him. Wow. It's awful. Well, there was another murder mentioned in that article in that long litany of issues and it said that wesley watson was shot dead in a quarrel over his wife's infidelity Mm. that's incorrect in part and i'll explain what part so who was who was the son-in-law wesley watson um well he married minerva's sister nancy jane sublet in 1853 wesley would serve in the union army during the civil war In the 1870 census, I found the couple left Putnam County, Indiana, and had now settled in Effingham County, Illinois. They had two daughters, one born before the war and one soon after, as well as a domestic servant in the home. And it seems Wesley, an attorney, was doing quite well. They had real estate valued at $10,000 and a personal estate valued at $10,000. So everything would change for the family one year later on July 19th, 1871. I'm going to read an article I found in the Effingham Democrat on July 27, 1871, that best describes the events of Wesley's murder. Once more, Effingham has become the scene of one of the blackest deeds in the calendar of crimes, of which attorney Wesley Watson was the unfortunate victim. On Tuesday afternoon, at about two o'clock, a stranger of respectable appearance made his appearance in Effingham and diligently inquired the whereabouts of lawyer Watson, saying that he had a case for him to plead. 
Watson, being out of town, the stranger's desire of seeing him could not be gratified until his return. Meanwhile, it appears the stranger continued his search for his victim with unabated diligence until at about half past eight o'clock when in front of the Western Hotel, he inquired of a boy if he had seen lawyer Watson. When he answered, there he goes. Mr. Watson being but a few steps distant, the stranger accosted him. Mr. Watson? When Watson halted and answered, that's my name, sir, whereupon the stranger stepped immediately in front of him and while uttering the words, I have a case to settle with you, he shot him in the right breast and then ran around the corner and got away. Oh my God. Yeah. At the report of the pistol, Watson fell with a deep groan and then uttered two or three piercing cries. When men gathered around and carried him to Meyer's store, where being placed upon a lounge, he said, I am a dead man, and requested that his partner, attorney S.F. Gilmore, be sent for, as he desired to make his will. At about one o'clock, he was taken to his residence, where at half past four o'clock, he died. At latest accounts, no trace of the murderer's identity or whereabouts of the murderer has been discovered. Now, the Effingham paper failed to cover all the details and secrets. Oh, there's more. Because, oh, there's more. It seems that Wesley may not have been the best of men. It seems like the sublet women just did not pick the best guys. Oh, God. According to an article in the Chicago Tribune, which also covered the story. Wow. And it was an article article that came out the day before the Effingham story on July 26, 1871. The reason lawyer Watson was out of town is because he was out in the country with his alleged mistress, Mrs. Laura Holly. A oh woman my goodness. He also, yeah, a woman he also supported financially. Now, it seems that after he was shot, then in addition to his lawyer, he requested the presence of Mrs. Holly, not his wife. Oh, my. Yeah, but someone misunderstood, and it was his wife, Nancy Sublet Watson, who arrived. So it's likely she heard him as he had his will written out by his partner. And yes, I did find said will. The newspaper article says that the will gave his wife $8,000 of the estate and Mrs. Holly $2,000. But it wasn't quite as simple as that. In the will, Wesley bequeathed all his property, real and personal, to his wife, Nancy. And this was item number two, after, you know, the typical pay my debts and all that. Mm -hmm. And then it said, with one exception, and it led to item number three, in which he bequeathed the property he owned in the western portion of Effingham and all his interest in his law office to Mrs. Laura Holly. Yeah. Then he... <laughs> Then he made his partner and his wife, Nancy, co-executors of his estate. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. But that's not all. Because the Tribune decided to spill all the tea on Wesley Watson. Here we would gladly throw a veil over the domestic life of Wesley Watson, but we do not understand it to be our duty as a journalist to suppress the details of any man's life whose conduct and tragic end may prove a lesson and a warning to the rising generation. Watson's life for a few years past has been such that no sooner was it known that he had been shot than the first exclamation from each one who knew him was, it is just what I expected. There is a woman at the bottom of it. 
the pursuit of loose women had become an absorbing passion with him. For them he neglected his profession and sacrificed his reputation and the domestic happiness of his family. Against his unblushing infidelities, his patient wife has remonstrated for years until he came to hate and abuse her on account of her remonstrances. Mm -hmm. He has frequently kept these creatures in his own house. And if his wife opposed, he has abused her and inflicted upon her personal violence. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Twice within two years, his domestic brutalities have brought him before the police authorities of our city. And as often, he has had to give bonds for good behavior. This is a mild statement of his ruffian-like conduct. Were we to tell the truth in plain language, our readers would be still more shocked. And all this because his wife remonstrated against his making his house a harem. Although Watson's murderer made his escape and it was not known for a short time who he was, yet a few hours sufficed to disclose his name, past life, and the motive which prompted him to commit the deed. The public was right in the supposition that a woman was at the bottom, and from what we can learn, she is a very worthless woman, too. As the murderer, however, has not yet been taken and his whereabouts are unknown, we forbear giving any further details in regard to him or his reasons for committing this deed, except that $500 reward has been offered for his apprehension. Wow. I wonder if it was the husband of the woman that he was, you know, having an yeah, affair Yeah, and with. I tried to find Mrs. Laura Holly, but... I, I wasn't having the best luck, so either they changed the name, it was different. I just, I couldn't find her. I, I mean, there's a couple possibilities, just not enough for me to go on to go, oh, that's her. Okay. So, back to Minerva. Um, she, <laughs> I just can't imagine having these sisters, that, and this goes on, and then going, okay, let me find somebody to marry. Yeah, seriously. I'd be all like, you know... Yeah spinsterhood's looking pretty darn good right now yeah and so i mean and her husband's minerva's husband's died of, with trains and stuff but she remarries in october 1872 to worthington wolcott gardner she and worthington would have five children of their own so now she's a mother of eight including twins trifosa and trifina huh i like the name otherwise known as dora and fina but I noted something interesting in the 1880 census. While her two oldest children with William lived with them, Molly was nowhere to be found. Hmm. By the time of the 1880 census, both of Minerva's parents had died. Her mother when she was just 10 years old and her father in April of 1880. I thought Molly could be living with one of them, but that wasn't the case. So where was she? <laughs> I believe that whoever was raising her in 1880 is what led her to Arkansas while the rest of her siblings and her mother remained in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that since she was the baby and she, she was little when her father died, mm -hmm. her mom might have given her up for adoption mm. or to a foster parent for some time. And that's mm -hmm. how she ended up in Arkansas. But not being able to find her in 1880 made it difficult for me to know where she went mm -hmm. and who she went with. Okay. Zelda, I once mentioned to you that there are some trees that I feel burdened with. We had a conversation like I'm like I'm saying negative energy, evil, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I just I struggle to get through those trees where there whereas there are others that charge me up and I find it to be a delight to explore. Ironically, one of those was Charles Manson. 
had so much fun doing that tree and talk about <laughs> evil coming from a person. So I don't know what it is. Well, the Fosse side of Diane's family was a delight. Mm-hmm. It was so much fun and I could keep going. <laughs> the first thing I want to mention is her father's name, George Edward Fosse III. Mm. Because much like Byron De La Beckwith, this is not exactly correct. Hmm. Although in this case, if you want to get technical, he was actually George Fosse IV. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I was able to trace the Fosse family back to Thomas Fosse, who was born in 1789 in East London, England, in a district called Poplar. However, I went much further back with his wife's family. So hold, Thomas hold, married... Hold, hold on for just a second. You said in Poplar? Poplar. In London. Yes. You know, that's where Call the Midwife is set. No, I did not, because I've never watched the show. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's on my list. I have so many shows to watch, and right now all I'm watching are old movies. I am judging you, but I understand. Okay. okay. Sorry, I had to cut in, because I'm like, wait, I know that. Okay. Okay, that's awesome. Okay. So... I went much further back with Thomas Fossey's wife's family. So he married Esther Elizabeth Evans at St. George the Martyr in Southwark on February 6th, 1810. They had a multitude of guests. Now, I have no idea how many people showed up for their wedding. That was a joke. A bad one at that. Um, but th- that's when they got married. H- Esther's mother, Esther Gabaday, was the great-great-granddaughter of Admiral John Benbow making Admiral John Bimbo Diane's eighth great-grandfather. Wow. Now, let me tell you about the Admiral. He was born in March 1653 in Shropshire, England, in the market town of Shrewsbury, just northwest of London. At the age of 25, he joined the Royal Navy and saw a lot of action over the years, like Algerian pirates, the Nine Years' War against France, Battles against more pirates, and that's more with a capital M, by the way, that's not. <laughs> and fighting against France again during the War of Spanish Succession. Tales about him were numerous, and he obtained admirers, like King Charles II, the King of Spain, who wrote, who at, through his admiration and after he met Admiral Bimbo, actually, and he wasn't an admiral at the time, but um, wrote to King James II, the reigning monarch of England at the time. And according to a story written by D. Parks, The Life and Exploits of Admiral Bimbo, published in 1818, James II then gave him command of a ship after receiving that letter. Under King William III in 1701, Bimbo was promoted to Vice Admiral and sent to the West Indies. Hmm. And additionally, the king, before he gave him that order, he, he granted them the option of refusing. But according to the story, Admiral Bimbo, quote, thought he had no right to choose his station. And if his majesty thought fit to send him to the East or West Indies or any other part of the globe, he would, with the utmost cheerfulness, obey his orders, end quote. Oh, that's very loyal of him. Yes. He had a great reputation as being steady and a good person and all this. So he went. He goes to the West Indies leaving his wife, Martha, and their seven children for the last time. Mm. In August 1702, the Royal Navy went to battle against the French, not far from the coast of Colombia, South America, near Santa Marta. 
His ships encountered the French, and Bimbo ordered his squadron to engage them. But not all of the ships followed his orders, with some leaving the battle altogether, as the ship he was on, the HMS Breda, and the other ship, the Ruby, fired upon the French. The fight led into the next day, and still at least two of the ships refute <laughs> at least two of the ships aptly named the Defiance, one <laughs> of them, and the Windsor, refused to engage. Even though they were they were next to some of the French ships, they're refusing to engage them in battle at all. Hmm. Then another English ship drops out of the battle. And this is going on. This is like days of battles. And it's basically now on the fourth night of battle, Bimbo is goes into battle with the enemy ship alone. Just him and the one ship going against all these French ships. He ended up being shot and his right leg was severely damaged. He had the wounds dressed and continued the battle. The captain of the Breda ordered the other ships to hold the line, but the other captains said the French were too strong and they should retreat, which they did after Bimbo realized they were all working against him. Mm. After the engagement ended, Admiral Bimbo received a note from the French admiral involved in the battle. Jean-Baptiste Ducasse, that read as follows. Sir, I had hopes on Monday last, but to have supped in your cabin. But please God to order it otherwise. I am thankful for it. As for those cowardly captains who deserted you, hang them, for by God they deserve it. Yours, Ducasse. You know Dang. what's bad when your enemy is, like, with mm -hmm. you? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Upon his arrival in Jamaica, Benbow held court-martials of all the captains of his squadron, including the one on his ship, because he signed a piece of paper with the others saying their refusal to fight the French. Although Benbow did testify on their behalf, um, that Captain Fogg, the captain of the Breda, who was aged 70 at the time, by the way, I found that interesting, he, he signed it just to stop the others from deserting and leaving them all together by themselves. Hmm. The captains of the Defiance and Greenwich were found guilty of cowardice. The captain of the Windsor was cleared of cowardice, but found guilty of other charges and kicked out of his Royal Navy. Captain Fogg and one other were found not guilty. And the captain of the Pendennis died before his hearing was held. The captains found guilty of cowardice, Richard Kirby and Cooper Wade, were sent to the Plymouth Colony aboard the HMS Bristol. After they arrived, their sentences were confirmed by the Lord High Admiral. Kirby and Wade were shot aboard the Bristol in April 1703. So they were executed for cowardice. Oh my gosh. Yeah. As for Admiral Bimbo, his wounds from the battle resulted in a leg amputation that soon led to an infection that couldn't be cured. Mm. He died in Jamaica on November 4th, 1702, and is buried in Kingston. If the name Admiral Bimbo sounds familiar, it's probably because you read the book Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. One of the major settings in the book is the Admiral Bimbo Inn, where the hero of the story lives prior to starting his adventure. And it was named after Admiral John Bimbo. Oh, wow. That's cool. So it was named after Diane Fossey's ancestor. Back down to Thomas Fossey and Admiral Bimbo's third great-granddaughter, Esther Elizabeth Evans. When the couple married, Thomas worked as a light man. At least that's what it said on the marriage record. 
the only occupation I found close to this during this time period was a lighter man whose job it was to take a cargo barge of sorts. I mean, nowhere near as large as the barges we have now on rivers. Um, But they would take um, the barge to ships that were not brought to the wharf to help with loading and unloading. Hmm. By the 1841 census, Thomas and Esther had 12 children, although not not all were living at home. And Thomas now worked as a timber merchant with an apprentice in their home plus a servant. He had moved up a bit in the world. Ten years later, they no longer lived in London, but had moved to Kent, to a home not far from the River Thames. Then, at the age of 66, Esther died in 1858. Thomas followed four years later. Of their 12 children, it was their fifth child that was the very first George Fossey. George Edward Fossey, born in 1820 in Poplar. Oh, wow. Home of Call of the Midwife. (laughs) (laughs) He went into the family business and became a timber merchant, like his father. Both aged 26, George and Mary Ann Godden got married in 1846. Unlike his father, his family was quite small with only three children. Mary, John, and George Henry, George number two. George number two, great-grandfather of Diane, was the immigrant ancestor of the Fosses. Now, George was their second child, born about a year after their first in 1848. Instead of following his father into the timber business, he charted his own path. At the age of 23, I think I found him in the census as a patient at the Melville Hospital and Royal Navy Infirmary under his middle name, Henry. If it was him, then he was a private likely in the Navy or perhaps another branch of service. I tried to find him in other... Um, UK records for the military and did not have any luck. Not long after, in the fall of 1874, George Henry married Elizabeth Ann Jowers. They settled into a home in the small town of Wanstead in East London, not far from where Elizabeth grew up in West Ham. And the couple would have six children there. Diane's grandfather, George Francis, was the second born in 1877. And the last was born in 1887. Now this is significant because not long after Laura's birth, the young, and that's the youngest, George Henry boarded the SS City of Richmond in Liverpool, England, and headed to the United States, leaving his family behind in London. Hmm. And he didn't do this as a way to abandon the family. It was a way to go get settled in America, Mm -hmm. get a job, find a home for the family before sending for them. Okay. Three years later, Elizabeth and the family would head west to their new home in San Francisco. But they had one important thing to do first. On October 18, 1891, their two youngest children, daughters Jessie Ethel and Laura, were baptized at St. Giles Church in Camberwell, a town to the south of London. And probably the very next day, Elizabeth and all six children are heading to get on their ship to go to America. Cool. Um, now, they boarded the SS Nordland, a ship originating out of Antwerp. Now, I cannot find the departure date for the ship, but usually the ships took 12 to 14 days to cross the ocean at this time. So, considering how close that is to October 18th and when she arrived, which I'll, I'll get to, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure if the ship happened to stop in England and then they boarded there or if they found a way to get to Antwerp so they could board 
Mm. within five days because the ship arrived at Ellis Island on November 4th. So baptisms, October 18th, they arrive in America on November 4th. That's pretty good time. I would think it's a really good time. I'm just trying to figure out, did they go to Antwerp and how did they get there? Uh, Or did the ship stop in England and pick up more passengers? uh, Um, I'm not sure. So, Clearly, though, once they disembarked and were admitted into the country, the group of seven would make their way across the country to San Francisco, most likely by train. By this point, George had settled into a job much like he had in England, where he painted locomotives. But in San Francisco, he painted carriages. It wasn't long after the family was reunited that they had that they became naturalized citizens on July 17, 1896, at the Superior Court in San Francisco. By 1915, all the children had married and settled into their lives, although not all happily, it would seem. Hmm. The great-grandparents of Diane died not long after, Elizabeth Jowers Fossey in 1916, and George Henry 11 years later at age 78. So what happened to the immigrant grand-aunts and grand-uncles of Diane? I'm going to give a short overview about a couple of them before we talk about her grandparents. The oldest child was Mary Fossey, who was just two years older than George Francis. In 1897, she married fellow immigrant from England, Jack Wisby. Now, there seems to be a romantic story that's being passed around about them, saying that they were engaged and crossed the Atlantic together in 1897 and married once they arrived. Hmm. It sounds great, but it's not correct. Really? I Yeah. I can't find where or when Jack came to America. Um, but I can tell you that Mary was 15 when she came to America in 1891. I saw her on the ship manifest with her family. <laughs> cool. On past censuses, Jack has indicated he immigrated either in 1889, 1891, or 1895. And I, heck, I even saw an article that said he immigrated in 1897. I have no idea. So I'm not sure when he arrived because I couldn't find him on the manifest. Now, it turns out that both Jack and Mary were artists. Oh, wow. And they were very devoted to each other and art. But like most artists, you know, they found work outside of their art to earn money in the beginning. Jack worked as an engraver, and Mary taught at the Chinese Mission School in San Francisco. That is until the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, Mm. which also happened to destroy some of their art. Eventually, Jack would do his art full time, but Mary spent her time keeping up the home. Her art pieces are considered exceptional and rare. I was unable to find any images of them <laughs> because apparently they're all in their people all own them. Hmm. And now the couple would live in San Francisco until at least 1920, or at least according to the census records, which again, this is the third family member this happened to the census counted them twice. Mm-hmm. Once living with her father and the other living in Bolinas, California. According to the Bolinas Museum website, Jack bought land in Bolinas, California in 1915 and built a home there, a home they would own until 1931. They were counted at the home in 1920, but not 1930. 
So they were counted once with her father and once at this house. Anyhow, today, landscape artist Jack Wisby's paintings are still being shown at the Bellinas Museum in Marin County, where they also sell a book of his works entitled Landscape Paintings of Marin, California. That's cool. Because he ended up being a successful artist. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so that was Mary Fossey. Now let's go to Lizzie Esther Fossey, the fourth of the six children. And she married John Karkeek Gleason. Wait, that's wrong. John Karkeek Glasson in 1903. And her marriage merited a large wedding announcement in the San Francisco Examiner and the San Francisco Call. Wow. Knowing how much you love a good wedding announcement, Zelda, oh, yes. I thought I'd share part of this one with you. Yay! It's from the call on May 10th, 1903. And it states that the wedding was attended by a large gathering of friends of the happy young couple. William H. Holt, organist of the choir of Grace Episcopal Church, played the wedding march from Lohengrin as the young people stood before the clergyman to be made one. The bride was attired in a white silk costume and wore orange blossoms in her hair. Aww. She was attended by her sister, Miss Jessie. After the ceremony, the happy couple left for a trip to the southern part of the state. Wow. I love that. And the actual yeah, the actual announcement's a little larger, but I thought I'd pin and put <laughs> part of it for you. It's okay. Now, Lizzie and her husband, John, would have four children. The youngest was named Elizabeth Binbo Glasson a nod to their ancestor, John Benbow. Their two sons would be heroes to many, though. Oldest son, Sidney, attended the University of California, Berkeley, and became a member of the Life Saving Corps, basically lifeguards along the coastal and bay waters. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Sid was recorded as saving 32 lives in 1938, or by 1938, during his time with the guard. But they wouldn't be the only ones. In a Santa Rosa newspaper in 1949, I found a small item thanking Sid and another for saving the daughter of some relieved parents. Sid's brother Horace was also in the life-saving business, not as a career, ah. but in an article in the Daily Independent Journal on August 18, 1949, according to this article, he was in Bolinas at the shore. He was about to leave when he heard screams. He turned to see what was going on and found a seven-year-old named Marilyn screaming for someone to help her younger sister and a friend. Oh, no. Marjorie and Ellen, ages five and six, respectively. What happened? Well, apparently the girls had been playing in the surf when they got out too far and the water got too deep. Oh, no. Marilyn was able to get to shore, but not her sister and friend. Horace went in fully clothed, but didn't even have to swim. Because he was, you know, a lot bigger than these little girls. And brought the girls to safety. And yes, the girls were at the beach by themselves because it was the 40s. I get it. Mm -hmm. That would go with the 70s and yep. or the 80s too, too. So, you know. Now, Sister Laura with an H. or So this is um, Diane's grand aunt, Laura. And her last name had an H. Laura with an H. She was the youngest, as I mentioned earlier, and I found an engagement announcement in the San Francisco Call in April 1906, announcing her intentions to marry accountant Benjamin Walker Bores. The couple married nearly eight months later on December 1st at the Trinity Episcopal Church in San Francisco. 
It's a beautiful church on Cathedral Hill. Now, while Benjamin was from California, his parents were not. His father was from New York and his mother was from Peru. Hmm. Which I thought was kind of cool. That is cool. The couple had, yeah, the couple had two children and this is what they named them. So remember, this is Laura Fossey and Benjamin Walker Bors. They named their daughter Laura and their son Benjamin Walker oh. Jr. <laughs> That's not confusing mm-hmm. at all. No. It all seemed to be well until I found the following article in the Oakland Tribune on October 24th, 1922. An attempt by Mrs. Laura F. Bors, society woman, to commit suicide by drinking poison on July 3rd last because Benjamin W. Bors refused to take her on a trip to Los Angeles is related, among other charges, in a suit for divorce instituted by the husband in the Superior Court. Oh, my God. When he told his wife that it was inadvisable for her to accompany him, Mrs. Bors first threatened him with a revolver, then attempted to commit suicide by drinking poison from two bottles, Bors related. As a result, Mrs. Bors was ill for several days and he was compelled to postpone his trip, he declares. Mrs. Bors on two occasions quarreled with him at social functions. In October 1918, she became incensed because the hostess at a social function did not place him at the dinner table as she liked. Following a quarrel at another social function in October 1920, Mrs. Bors threatened him with a revolver when they reached home and struck him in the face with it, he relates. Oh my God. While on, yeah, while on an automobile trip in August, eight, in August 1921, the husband says he left the machine with two other men and she drove away, compelling him to walk a distance of 16 miles. Wow. Now, apparently... Laura also brought suit against Benjamin at the same time. Of course, her side did not end up in the papers. Mm. No, it wasn't as sensational. And he actually withdrew his divorce um, filing. He withdrew the complaint. Interesting. Do we know why? The complaint that I just described. Well, Laura kept the complaint and he allowed her to get the divorce. Oh, okay. And they, 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 it was official in December under the following terms. And this is from the Oakland Tribune, this time on December 27th, 1922. A property settlement which was reached out of court granted Mrs. Bors and her children, Benjamin Jr. and Laura Elizabeth Bors, the use of the family home for life. The sum of $200 a month alimony was provided. And I looked it up. That's about $3,500 a month in today's dollars. Wow. Mrs. Bors also was given a summer cottage at Bolinas Bay and an automobile. It is, oh gosh, hold on. Oh, it is stipulated in the agreement that the payment of the alimony shall cease upon the remarriage of Mrs. Bors. She never remarried. <laughs> I wouldn't either with that set up. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Bors' testimony was to the effect that her husband was an expert accountant earning $750 a month. in today's dollars. She said that three years ago, he had begun treating her coldly, stayed out all night and told her that he did not love her. Mm. So I have a feeling there's a lot more to the story. He was because you want to withdraw the complaint. If you really were that concerned about. 
Well, I kind of makes you wonder. It was like, what? What was the? Like, there had to be a reason, you know? Yeah. Like, and I don't necessarily think that that reason would be like he was lying in it or anything. I think that no, but like I, I feel like he left out some details in mm-hmm. it. Like, if he said, "I don't love you anymore," I'm not going to be here, and she's like losing her mind over mm-hmm. it because I mean, there could be multiple things going on. Mm-hmm. And then, and all the stories be true. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I don't know. So, it, it strikes me that there would have been, maybe it was family pressure or something. I mean. Something was going on. Wow. You would think that some of this would have made the newspapers at the time, given that they were society people, but it didn't. One would think. Okay. Now on to Diane Fossey's grandfather, George Francis Fossey. So this is George number three. Okay. Like his sister Lizzie, he got married in 1903. Unlike her, it was not announced in the newspaper. Mm. He married Adelaide Lillian Lavinia Burns, a young woman his age from Maryland, on September 8, 1903 in San Francisco. Adelaide came from a family with with deep roots in Maryland, going back to her great-grandfather on her mother's side, Elijah Tall Esquire, who was born in 1786. Mm. In the 1860 census, he had land valued at $2,000 and a personal estate of $5,000. Normally, this would be a sign for me that he might be an enslaver. However, I was unable to find any evidence of this in the 1860 slave schedule. Doesn't mean he wasn't, just I couldn't find the evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, His wife was Susan Aaron, and their oldest daughter, Emily, was Diane's second great-grandmother. Now, Emily Tall married Marcellus Aaron. Okay. Yes. Rare. Her mom's Susan Aaron. She marries Marcella oh, okay. Aaron. And and when you look back, Marcellus Aaron had a parent with the last name Tall. I believe this family crosses over at some point. In other words, you know, that Marcellus and Emily were distant cousins at the very least, but I was unable to find the connection. So I think it's if there is one, it's really far back. But we're back far right now, and it's hard to find the record, harder to find records to make those some of those connections in a short time period. Their daughter, Alexander, or Ella, as she went by, because Alexander is a mouthful. Um, Ella married Henry Burns in 1857, and Henry was a 23-year-old wit- widower. The couple had their own children, nine of them. The first a year after they married, and their last, Adelaide, in 1878. Then, before she ever had a chance to know her own mother, Ella died on June 7, 1878. So she was just an infant. And her death would cause a bit of a ripple in Baltimore. You see, at first people thought she had been murdered. And this is from the Baltimore Sun on June 18, 1878. A careful investigation of the facts connected with the death of Mrs. Ella Burns, who was killed on the 7th instant on the Northern Central Railroad. I told you the railroad was coming in again. Near the Clipper Cotton Mills shows that there is no foundation whatever for the rumor circulated by certain newspapers that she had been murdered. The evidence adduced before the coroner's inquest showed that she had been seen near the railroad shortly before the passage of a train walking in the direction of Druid Hill Park for the purpose of going to the city, and that not long afterward her body was found lying between the east and west tracks. 
Mrs. Burns is said to have been a very absent-minded woman and is thought she walked too near the track before she noticed the approaching train and was struck by the engine or tender. Mm. Mrs. Burns had a case coming up for trial before a magistrate on the day following her death. I can never find out what that case was. It wasn't in the papers. And her visit to the city was for the purpose of obtaining counsel. The husband of Mrs. Burns was in North Carolina the last time he was heard from, and he has been written to, but up to yesterday, no answer had been received from him. She left eight children, several of them quite small, and it stated that suit has been entered in their behalf in the circuit court for Baltimore County to recover $20,000 in damages from the railroad company. She was the main support of the children who still remain at the home where the mother lived and are mainly in care of their grandmother. Her pocketbook found on her person after her death contained 25 cents and money. Wow. So, as you might have gathered, Henry Burns wasn't there. He had left the family and kind of disappeared. Hmm. Um, likely when Ella was pregnant with Adelaide. Oh, wow. So, since he was gone, the care of the children fell to Ella's mother, Mrs. Emily Tall Aaron. Well, that is all except the two youngest, Adelaide and her brother Elijah, who found themselves with other families. I'm hoping you can explain this next part to me, Miss Lawyer person. I'll do my very, very best. Um, a habeas corpus for the recovery of two children, one and three years old, of Mrs. Ella Burns was settled before Judge Brown yesterday by the giving up of the children by the families in which they had been cared for since the death of their mother. Mrs. Aaron, grandmother of the children, was appointed their guardian, and she got out the habeas corpus. Okay. Now, the reason I have questions, I've never heard of a habeas corpus for getting kids. I've heard about it as a place to court. <clears throat> okay, so what it basically means is produce the body, the mm -hmm. corpus body, and basically that they're being commanded to produce the children. Okay. And so, um, and bring the children themselves there. Um, okay. So it seems like it was a custody battle. Um and we're, we've heard it more often where writs of habeas corpus uh, regarding people who were in jail. Right. So, you know, so that's why we're, it probably seems a little bit so weird. It sounds yeah. like the grandmother was looking for these children, wanted the children, and they weren't coming mm -hmm. out. And so she had to go to court to get them. Yep. Okay. That's what that sounds like. Yeah. Thank you. So now four months after the death of Ella, all the children are in the custody of Emily the railroad has now settled with the family for $10,000 in damages, so things are finally settled. Or were they? At this point, Henry returns to Baltimore. I suspect he heard of the settlement or at least received the letters that had been sent to him, and he petitions the court to get custody of his children. Mm -hmm. Emily objected to this, because mm -hmm. it has been now months since Ella has died. And she fought him in court. On April 10th, 1879, a ruling was made granting guardianship to three of his children to him. But Emily's attorneys filed an appeal. And the next week they returned to court. And part of Henry's testimony was that Emily wouldn't even allow him to see his children, was his complaint. Mm. Now, while I was unable to find anything else in the newspapers about this case... The 1880 census led me to conclude that either Henry died before this case concluded or he simply lost as the grandchildren all lived with their grandmother, Emily. Okay. 
And I know he was at least dead by 1883, as his son, Elijah, Adelaide's brother, died in a drowning situation in 1883. And the, the fact that his parents were both dead was mentioned in the article. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in 1893, 14 years after her husband died, Emily Tall Aaron passed away at 74. It's likely she still had Adelaide under her care as she was only 15 at the time. And I wish I could say where Adelaide was in 1900 and how she ended up in San Francisco, but that was a paper trail I could not find. Um, Although there might be a small clue, although it's not definitive, you see, after Adelaide and George Fossey got married in San Francisco, and they even had some of their children, they would live for a short time in the Bronx, New York in 1910. And they were living with her brother, Charles, and his daughter, Helen. George and Charles both worked for a piano company at the time. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. So I think it's possible that Charles is why Adelaide came to California. And I believe this in part because... I found that he had registered to vote in 1904. So they were at least there at the same time. And it could be she came there first and he followed or he, I think it's more the other because he was older. Um, Mm -hmm. He was about five years older than her that he came out to San Francisco and she followed. So, but I do know that she must've been in San Francisco long enough to be courted by George Francis Fossey and then to get married. And George would hold a variety of jobs over the course of his life, enough to support the family, from being an electrician to working for the railroad to working in a warehouse. Now, it's likely that Diane knew her paternal grandparents, George and Adelaide, although Adelaide died in 1938 at age 50, when Diane was only six. This is also when George, Edward, and Hazel divorced. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if Hazel allowed, we know that she won't allow her ex-husband to see the kids, but did she let her in-laws see the kids? Mm -hmm. That's never really been addressed. So I have no idea. But if she did, she would have known him from even longer because he died in 1956 at the age of 78. Now, I promised we would get to Audrey Fossey at the end. Here it goes. And, and I, I put it here because I couldn't figure out any other place to put it, honestly. So Audrey was three years older than George. In September 1926, she married Milton Thomas Smith at Grace Episcopal Church in San Francisco. Big, fancy wedding, announcements, the whole shebang. And they had two children, a boy and a girl. But the marriage ended in 1933 when Audrey filed for divorce, citing cruelty. Uh, and the divorce was granted. Eight years later, now living in Marin County, she married again on August 11th, 1941, this time to Sergeant Wilbur Jack Rowe. Um, he was a serviceman with the 21st Pursuit Squadron and the 24th Pursuit Group, stationed at Hamilton Field in Marin County. Even though the United States was not at war yet, the military was very active in gearing up for the potentiality of war particularly as tensions increased between the U.S. and Japan. In early October 1941, part of the pursuit group was activated and sent to the Philippines. And then pilots arrived from Texas. 
you know, to keep filling out this, these groups. Then in early November, newlywed Audrey had to say goodbye to Wilbur as his squadron was sent to the Philippines along with another, bringing the 24th group to full strength. She would never see Wilbur again. Hmm. Once in the Philippines at Clark Field on November 15th, the Army placed the flight lines on alert for 24 hours a day. They were armed and ready with pilots on 30 minutes notice. During the day and at night, the 24th trained for any possible encounters with the enemy, the Japanese. On December 8th, 1941, the 24th received word about the attack on Pearl Harbor, but it wasn't through official channels yet. However, they still went on alert. A few hours later, they received official word that the U.S. was now at war with Japan. And soon the 24th Pursuit Group would find themselves under attack by the Japanese. It's way too complex to get into all the details that happen next, and I'm not a military historian in the least. But soon after, the Battle of Bataan began in the Philippines on January 7th, 1942. It was a battle that would last three months, ending on April 9th, 1942, when U.S. General Edward King Jr. surrendered to the Japanese and to Colonel Mutu Nakayama specifically. By this point, the Japanese had over 60,000 prisoners of war, likely including Audrey's husband, Wilbur. Mm -hmm. And they also had 28,000 civilian non-combatants who had face injuries and were under their guidance, I guess you could say. And they wanted to move all these prisoners from their location in Bataan to Camp O'Donnell in Capas Tarlac a walk of approximately 70 miles in six days. This transfer is today referred to as the Bataan Death March, a march known for thousands of deaths, mainly Filipinos, and physical abuse faced by the soldiers. Before the march even began, the abuse started. American soldiers were forced to turn over their possessions. According to U.S. Lieutenant Kermit Lay, he witnessed the Japanese take an officer and two enlisted men behind a shack where they shot the Americans, all because they had Japanese mementos in their pockets. Word spread to all the soldiers who, as quickly as they could, got rid of any Japanese mementos. When the march ended, only 54,000 of the 80,000 who started the march survived. But that wasn't all who died. Once they arrived at Camp O'Donnell, the prisoners continued to die at a rate of approximately 700 a day, leading to a death toll of 20,000 American and Filipino soldiers, most buried in a mass grave. Wilbur was most likely among the dead in one of those mass graves, although whether he died on the march or the prison camp is not known. Sergeant Wilbur Jack Rowe was listed as missing in action on May 28, 1942. His name is one of over 36,000 listed on the walls of the missing in Manila at the Manila American Cemetery. And by the way, I learned that the general public was not told of these events, the Bataan Death March, until June 1944. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that Wilbur was officially just declared missing and Audrey was notified that he was missing, but she would not know what happened to him for another two years. Wow. Yeah. I was just going to with the Japanese did to the Philippines is just unreal. Unreal. My friend Hope's parents grew up in the Philippines oh. and came over when Hope was five years old. Mm -hmm. And Hope shared with me some of the things her dad saw as a little kid. And it is 
absolutely horrific. It's really bad. And I I mean, just from what I was reading, it's really bad. And this is from like Mm -hmm. Wikipedia and a couple other sites. Mm -hmm. In September 1945, the U.S. charged several Japanese officers with war crimes for the Bataan Death March and what happened to the prisoners at Camp O'Donnell. General Masaharu Hama, I think it's Hama, um, was found guilty and executed by firing squad in February 1946. Two of his subordinates were sentenced to death by hanging, carried out in 1949. One Japanese officer who actually ordered the death of POWs, in fact, when the U.S. surrendered, he thought they should kill all the prisoners. Um, his name was Masana, Masanobu Suji. He escaped before he could be captured and before the trials and hid in Thailand and then later China. Then in 1949, he came out of hiding, returned to Japan, and ended up being elected to the legislature multiple times. And he advocated renewed militarism, particularly against the U.S. He disappeared in 1961 on a trip to Laos. I hate ending on a sad note like that one because that's just a hard one. I, I encourage anybody to watch. I, it's Ken Burns has his uh, documentary on World War II. Or mm-hmm. there's so many good ones. Watch, watch it. It's it's not always fun to watch some of these things, but they're important to know. I think. Anyhow, so here's a fun fast fact for you. Diane's grandmother, Adelaide Lillian Burns Fossey, was a local model of sorts. It was for a brand new product that was released to the public in 1933 after the World's Fair in Chicago that year. She appeared in a series of ads with other housewives from California and the newspapers to help promote the product. Instead of telling you the name of the product, I'll share some copy from the ad and see if you can guess Zelda. I promise. Okay, I love these. This should be pretty easy. After submitting this blank salad dressing to the most critical women in California we know, it's evident that thousands of people prefer it to the finest mayonnaise. There's something about this new salad dressing that delights the most discriminating taste. A new flavor, yet a familiar one. Ranch. No. Hidden Valley Ranch. No. Is it a Miracle Whip? Yes. Very good Miracle Whip. <laughs> the, the, the key is, a lot of us forget that it's Miracle Whip salad dressing. Mm-hmm. And Chris, my husband, was like going, um, salad dressing? I mean, I go, well, yeah, people use it for like potato salad and pasta salad. And he goes, oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in one particular ad, it has a picture of Adelaide about to taste the Miracle Whip. Like it's literally on a spoon in a glob. Mm-hmm. And, and the copy underneath says, Mrs. George Fossey Jr. of San Francisco, whose salads are famous, says, I, for one, like Kraft's new Miracle Whip salad dressing better than mayonnaise. As do my guest. Oh my! And that How was fun. A, yeah, that was the family tree of Diane Fossey. And I want to add, I have several more stories I could share about this family. I mean, including an interesting criminal history for the Fossey and Jowers family in England. Oh my gosh! But we only have so much time, and this has already been pretty long as it is. Um, I think one day soon, you and I need to have a special episode, maybe to celebrate our two years. It might be a little late. But um, where we share some stories uh, that we had to put to the side, maybe some stuff, fun facts you found on your side, and I can share some of the stories that we couldn't get to because, you know, time. Mm-hmm. I think that sounds fantastic. Yes, so. let's do that. Well, I have to tell you, this is one of the more enjoyable ones we've done, you yeah. know, just 
There was so much to find. There was, you know, so much to read. And honestly, compared to the wealth of information we had, what we were able to actually relay in a reasonable amount of time. So if you are at all interested in the life and death of Diane Fossey, there is a lot out there to read. So go forth and educate yourself. There is. And I'll have some links on the webpage so you can go to them and, Mm -hmm. and, and, as usual, I mean, a couple of web pages I'm a little behind on. I'll try to catch up one of these days. But I, I have a plethora of pictures and documents from what we discuss. Mm-hmm. So like a companion on our website, murderousroots.com, that you can check out. And it also has a list of our source, a lot of our sources. And Sounds lovely. Well, Denise, as always, it's been an amazing time today. And I hope you have a great yes. week and a lovely vacation. And I plan to. And we'll see you. I have a lot of stuff to get done. We'll see you again soon. Yeah, where murder and family meet. If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.